The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I'm your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss dreams. Uh, I find this a fascinating subject, and we're going to look at the works of Carl Jung. This is actually an essay he wrote, and it was published posthumously from him in 1974, and it belongs to Princeton University. Uh, That's who has copyright claims to this work. Um, so it's it's an interesting read because uh, the, the works of Carl Jung, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, are very important because not only was Jung one of the preeminent psychologists of the early 20th century, um, but he was also an alchemist. And he understood a lot of the uh, principles of alchemy and applied them directly to psychology and psychiatry of our modern era. And some of these ideas are very important, and he understood uh, various things. And he's the one that's largely uh, credited with uh, bringing about the term archetypes into the modern lexicon. Uh, So it's important to look at some of his ideas as it relates to these things and see what he had in mind and what he actually knew and was able to apply to these different ideas. So uh, what prompted this is... uh, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced any similar thing, but uh, I happen to have some recurring dreams at times, and I've always been interested in trying to delve into the meanings of dreams, and, uh, you know, I I found this essay, and I figured, well, this is an interesting angle to go at it at, uh, because there's many different ways to interpret dreams, but uh, largely I have several, uh, there's usually two or three of them. Uh, where they're recurring dreams, and it's mostly, it's not so much the theme of the dream is the same, but it's always the locations where the dream takes place that seem to recur in my dreams. So, uh, um, and and some of these places do not exist in the real world. Uh, so if you've ever experienced that, where it's the same place in your dreams, but it doesn't really exist, it's it's not anywhere you've ever been in the real world, But it exists in your dreams, and this is where it takes place. And I have several dreams like this, so I've always found this idea fascinating that, uh, you know, there's um, this other uh, map, so to say, uh, of uh, different places that occurs in my dreams. And it makes perfect sense to me while I'm dreaming. Like, it's a familiar territory, but these locations don't actually exist in reality, or at least not that I'm consciously aware of. Uh, So that being the case, I I found uh, these different ideas interesting and uh, started delving into uh, researching dreams. So uh, that's kind of where I came across Young's work here, and I figured we could look at it and, uh, you know, maybe discern some things there, uh, because it's a fascinating topic, and I'd love to talk to somebody that's a little bit more in the know about dream interpretation. And Let's see what Carl Jung has to say about dreams. Uh, This is an essay titled On the Nature of Dreams, written by Jung, and like I said, it was published posthumously in 1974 by Princeton University. Uh, So that's who has the copyright claims to it. Excuse me. Okay. Medical psychology difference, sorry, medical psychology differs 
from all other scientific disciplines in that it has to deal with the most complex problems without being able to rely on tested rules of procedure, on a series of verifiable experiments and logically explicable facts. On the contrary, it is confronted with a mass of shifting irrational happenings, for the psyche is perhaps the most baffling and unapproachable phenomenon with which the scientific mind has ever had to deal. Although we must assume that all psychic phenomena are somehow, in the broadest sense, causally dependent, it is advisable to remember at this point that causality is in the last analysis no more than a statistical truth. Therefore, we should perhaps do well in certain cases to make allowance for absolute ir irrationality, even if, on heuristic grounds, we approach each per particular case by inquiring into its causality. Even then, it is advisable to bear in mind at least one of the classical distinctions, namely that between cause efficiens and causa finalis. In psychological matters, the question, why does it happen, is not necessarily more productive of results than the other question, to what purpose does it happen? And I'm going to pause there. Uh, so I think this is wherein uh, Jung differs in his interpretation of dreams uh, from some other psychologists like uh, Freud and some others. He approaches the question differently, not why does this happen, but to what purpose does it happen? See, so a lot of this is approach more so than anything. Uh, so I think he applied some alchemical reasoning uh, to this uh, this problem here, this uh I don't know if you could call it a problem, but this idea, this study of dreams and interpretation of dreams. Uh, so that being the case, uh, he may have a little different viewpoint on it than some of the uh, other preeminent psycho psychologists and uh, psychiatrists of the time. So let's read on here and see what else he says here. Among the many puzzles of medical psychology, there is one problem child, the dream it would be an interesting as well as difficult task to examine the dream exclusively in its medical aspects, that is, with regard to the diagnosis and prognosis of pathological conditions. The dream does in fact concern itself with both health and sickness, and since by virtue of its source in the unconscious, it draws upon a wealth of subliminal perceptions. It can sometimes produce things that are very well worth knowing. This has often proved helpful to me in cases where the differential diagnosis between organic and psychogenic symptoms presented difficulties. For prognosis, too, certain dreams are important. In this field, however, the necessary preliminary studies, such as careful records of case histories and the like, are still lacking. Doctors with psychological training do not as yet make a practice of recording dreams systematically so as to preserve material which would have a bearing on subsequent outbreak of severe illness or a lethal issue, in other words, on events which could not be foreseen at the beginning of the record. The investigation of dreams in general is a life work in itself, and their detailed study requires the cooperation of many workers. I have therefore preferred, in this short review, to deal with the fundamental aspects of dream psychology and interpretation in such a way that those who have no experience in this field can at least get some idea of the problem and the method of inquiry. Anyone who is familiar with the material will probably agree with me that a knowledge of fundamentals is more important than an 
accumulation of case histories, which still cannot make up for lack of experience. And I'm going to pause right there for a moment, folks. So uh, basically, Young equated dreams uh, to health and wellness and sickness as well. Uh, I guess he was able to determine that uh, based upon uh, certain findings uh, within dreams or, or certain things, certain aspects of the unconscious mind would uh, make it known that uh, there there may be some correlation to wellness or sickness in said case. So that's an interesting distinction in and of itself, that uh, the fact that uh, dreams could potentially either be an indicator of or an effector of your health. Uh, so this is an important thing to keep in mind. And once again, I think this would relate back... <coughs> to the overall importance of sleep, right? Uh, sleep is a necessary thing for people in order to be healthy. Uh, your physical body and your mind uh, requires that you get a certain amount of sleep in order to optimally function. And if we lack that sleep or get too much of that sleep, well, we don't function optimally, and it does affect our health in certain ways, right? Uh, so I think he's taking this over to the next level by talking about it in terms of dreams as well, uh, interpretation of dreams. So let's read on here and see what else he has to say here. The dream is a fragment of involuntary psychic activity, just conscious enough to be reproducible in the waking state. Of all psychic phenomena, the dream presents perhaps the largest number of irrational factors. It seems to possess a minimum of that logical coherence and that hierarchy of values shown by the other contents of consciousness and is therefore less transparent and understandable. Dreams that form logically, morally, or aesthetically satisfying wholes are exceptional. Using a dream is a strange and disconcerting product distinguished by many bad qualities such as lack of logic, questionable morality, uncouth form, and apparent absurdity or nonsense. People are therefore only too glad to dismiss it as stupid, meaningless, and worthless. And I'm going to pause there. And I would say that's anything but the case. Uh, dreams, in my view, are very meaningful, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Dreams, in my view... Uh, they, they have a lot of meaning and they carry a lot of weight with them uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I think uh, they affect your conscious life in ways you don't realize, right? And, and a lot of times we, we dream at night and we don't remember the dreams. Uh, so it's actually pretty rare to remember a dream. And that's why if you have like a recurring dream and you remember it, well, that, that's an interesting thing because that's kind of an anomaly of sorts, isn't it? If you have this uh, recurring dream and you actually have, uh, you know, conscious uh, recall of the dream in a waking state, uh, that, that's an interesting thing to look at. So uh, there might be a little bit deeper meaning to something like that than, say, just a, a standard nonsensical type dream. And I've had plenty of nonsensical dreams in my, in my day, too. So uh, I find this uh, course of study very interesting. But uh, let's read on here and see what uh, Jung has to say here. Every interpretation of a dream is a psychological statement about certain of its contents. This is not without danger, as the dreamer, like most people, usually displays an astonishing sensitiveness to critical remarks, not only if they are wrong, but even more if they are right. 
Since it is not possible, except under very special conditions, to work out the meaning of a dream without the collaboration of the dreamer, an extraordinary amount of tact is required not to violate his self-respect unnecessarily. For instance, what is one to say when a patient tells a number of indecent dreams and then asks, why should I have such disgusting dreams? To this sort of question, it is better to give no answer, since an answer is difficult for several reasons, especially for the beginner, and one is very apt under such circumstances to say something clumsy, above all, when one thinks one knows what the answer is. So difficult is it to understand a dream that for a long time I have made it a rule, when someone tells me a dream and asks for my opinion, to say first of all to myself, I have no idea what this dream means. After that, I can begin to examine the dream. Here, the reader will certainly ask, is it worthwhile, in any individual case, to look for the meaning of a dream, supposing that dreams have any meaning at all, and that this meaning can be proved? It is easy to prove that an animal is a vertebrate by laying bare the spine, but how does one proceed to lay bare the inner meaningful structure of a dream? Apparently, the dream follows no clearly determined laws or regular modes of behavior apart from the well-known typical dreams such as nightmares. Anxiety dreams are not unusual, but they are by no means the rule. Also, there are typical dream motifs known to the layman, such as flying, climbing stairs or mountains, going about with insufficient clothing, losing your teeth, crowds of people, hotels, railway stations, trains, aeroplanes, automobiles, frightening animals such as snakes, etc. These motifs are very common, but by no means sufficient to confirm the existence of any system in the organization of a dream. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. So a lot of these are interesting dream motifs that he brings up here. The dreams of flying. I would also say the dream of falling. Has anybody had that dream where you dream like you're falling and you can't stop falling? Um, it's interesting uh, because uh, many people actually have these dreams. And does that relate to anxiety or something? Well, maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say for sure. But uh, he mentioned one here, climbing stairs. This one, I have a recurring dream where I'm in a, this uh, lobby, and I think it's e either some type of a hotel lobby or some type of a hospital lobby or a school lobby, some type of university or something. And there's all these stairs that you have to keep going up these different layers of stairs. And so I've had this dream before. Uh, many times with the climbing the stairs bit. And I don't know, maybe it's just related to uh, my chronic knee pain I have or something. I don't know. I mean, there's there's many different uh, ways you could interpret a lot of these things. But uh, um, <clears throat> at any rate, uh, some of these are common ones, as he says here. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, uh, rest assured, you're not alone if you have these kind of dreams. And they, they might seem weird or out of place or, uh, you know... Uh, kind of stereotypical of sorts, but uh, it, it's a common thing. So I, I find these things interesting. Um, and I see a question here in the in the, uh, the chat here. Gregory uh, asked if, have they found a way to enter or hijack our dreams yet? Sure feels like it because some of my dreams don't feel like mine. Um, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I think that's a very profound possibility. Uh, they, they have... Uh, uh, been able to perfect such technologies as voice to skull, right? So uh, there, there's there's a lot of different uh, 
possibilities here. And I think, uh, you know, the, the technology uh, as far as uh, the different aspects of uh, affecting people's minds in certain ways is definitely way beyond what we see in the public view, right? So it, it's certainly a real possibility that they could potentially affect your dreams in some way. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, scary dreams on pizza. Okay. Uh, I've never had a scary dream from eating pizza, but I mean, hey, some people have triggers, right? Uh, maybe. So uh, it's hard to say for sure. But uh, at any rate here, the whole point is, uh, you know, some of these common uh, dream motifs, um, people have these in common for the most part. And there may be uh, very specific individual fragments of the dreams that may be different, but uh, the overall themes are the same, right? The climbing stairs, the falling, uh, the the flying, uh, all of these different things. The, the travel factor, uh, maybe frightening animals popping up. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's interesting that uh, we all have these things in common, and it's, it's part of the human psyche. So uh, that being the case, who knows what causes these types of dreams, Right? That's the point. And the thing is, Jung is looking at it from the perspective is, uh, you know, what is the purpose of these dreams rather than what causes them, right? Well, what'll be the outcome? Like, what's what's the point in uh, the, the actual mind processing the dream? Why? why what's the point of that? What is the uh, the conclusion the mind's coming to with the dream? Uh, so that that's kind of more important to the interpretation of the dream uh, as opposed to the cause of the dream. So if you're eating pizza or spicy food or something like that, that might cause you to uh, have really vivid dreams or something like that. Um, you know, I, I've heard many things, many different types of foods and, and different things like that can cause vivid dreams of sorts. So, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, it, it's it, definitely a possibility uh, that that could be a factor involved, but... Uh, I'm just interested to see what else Carl Jung has to say here. So uh, let's read on. Some people have recurrent dreams. This happens particularly in youth, but the recurrence may continue over several decades. These are often very impressive dreams which convince one that they must surely have a meaning. This feeling is justified in so far as one cannot, even taking the most cautious view, avoid the assumption that a definite psychic situation does arise from time to time which causes the dream. But a psychic situation is something that, if it can be formulated, is identical with a definite meaning, provided, of course, that one does not stubbornly hold to the hypothesis, certainly not proven, that all dreams can be traced back to stomach trouble or sleeping on one's back or the like. Such dreams do indeed tempt one to conjecture some kind of cause. The same is true of so-called typical motifs, which repeat themselves frequently in longer series of dreams. Here again, it is hard to escape the impression that they mean something. But how do we arrive at a plausible meaning, and how can we confirm the rightness of the interpretation? One method, which, however, is not scientific, would be to predict future happenings from the dreams by means of a dream book and to verify the interpretation by subsequent events, assuming, of course, that the meaning of dreams lies in their anticipation of the future. Another way to get at the meaning of the dream directly might be to turn to the past and reconstruct former experiences from the occurrence of certain motifs in the dreams. 
While this is possible to a limited extent, it would have a decisive value only if we could discover in this way something which, though it had actually taken place, had remained unconscious to the dreamer, or at any rate something he would not like to divulge under any circumstances. If neither is the case, then we are dealing simply with memory images whose appearance in the dream is a. not denied by anyone, and b. completely irrelevant so far as a meaningful dream function is concerned, since the dreamer could just as well have supplied the information consciously. This, unfortunately, exhausts the possible ways of proving the meaning of a dream directly. And I'm going to pause there. So uh, basically, what he's saying is, I don't know. <laughs> right? Uh... <clears throat> so this is the thing. All right, we could uh, speculate as to the causes of different dreams. Like, you know, is it something I did consciously in my waking life uh, that uh, brought this dream on? Is it an old memory? Is it uh, anxiety about the future? Is it something that I ate? Is it because I laid on my back that I was dreaming this? Uh, there's all these different angles to look at it from. Uh, but the thing is, we can't really know. There's there's no way to definitively know for sure what this is without uh, trying to maybe make some type of a journal or something about this and uh, record similarities uh, of different things as far as causal factors. Uh, but the point here is the interpretation would still not be uh, able to be uh, pulled out just by determining causative factors in a dream, right? So... You know, it's it's highly a speculative thing. It's it's a subjective thing, right? This is an experiential thing, much like uh, archetypes and mythologies, right? It's experiential. It's subjective. It's something that we intrinsically understand to some degree on an unconscious level, but uh, can't make heads or tails of it consciously many many times. Uh, it's the same type of thing that goes on. In, in my view. Uh, but let's read on and see what he has to say here. It is Freud's great achievement to have put dream interpretation on the right track. Above all, he recognized that no interpretation can be undertaken without the dreamer. The words composing a dream narrative have not just one meaning, but many meanings. If, for instance, someone dreams of a table, we are still far from knowing what the table of the dreamer signifies, although the word table sounds unambiguous enough. For the thing we do not know is that this table is the very one at which his father sat when he refused the dreamer all further financial help and threw him out of the house as a good-for-nothing. The polished surface of this table stares at him as a symbol of his lamentable worthlessness in his daytime consciousness, as well as in his dreams at night. This is what our dreamer understands by table. Therefore, we need the dreamer's help in order to limit the multiple meanings of words to those that are essential and convincing. That the table stands as a mortifying landmark in the dreamer's life may be doubted by anyone who was not present. But the dreamer does not doubt it, nor do I. Clearly, dream interpretation is, in the first place, an experience which has immediate validity for only two persons. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So, once again, it's the idea of the dreamer as much as the dream, right? So uh, th that's the important part about the interpretation here. Uh, because we, we could see things on a symbolic level. Uh, in different ways from one another. Like uh, one 
a particular item may mean something different to me uh, than it does to you, right? Uh, so something may have more meaning to me than it does to you. Like, for instance, behind me, I have an old radio set that my father gave me shortly before he passed away. And, I mean, it's an old one. It's like a 1940s uh, radio set uh, that he gave me. Uh, and so it has sentimental value to me. So if I were to see something like that in a dream and I described it to you, well, you wouldn't think anything of it. If I said I saw an old radio, uh, you might not think anything of that. But see, it, it because it has a sentimental attachment to myself, uh, it might have a different interpretation if I'm the one to dream of it and tell you about it. Uh, so that that's, you know, one of the important distinctions here. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, uh, we could see... The dreamer is just as important as the dream as far as dream interpretation goes. So uh, let's see what he has to say here because he kind of led, uh, he left off that last paragraph here by saying, clearly dream interpretation is in the first place an experience which has immediate validity for only two persons. And what two persons is he talking about? Let's read on. If, therefore, we establish that the table in the dream means just that fatal table, with all that this implies, then, although we have not explained the dream, we have at least interpreted one important motif of it. That is, we have recognized the subjective context in which the word table is embedded. We arrived at this conclusion by a methodological questioning of the dreamer's own associations. The further procedures to which Freud subjects the dream content, the dream contents, sorry, to which Freud subjects the dream contents, I have had to reject, for they are too much influenced by the preconceived opinion that dreams are the fulfillment of quote-unquote repressed wishes. Although there are such dreams, this is far from proving that all dreams are wish fulfillments, any more than are the thoughts of our own conscious psychic life. There is no ground for the assumption that the unconscious processes underlying the dream are more limited and one-sided in form and content than conscious processes. One would rather expect that the latter could be limited to known categories, since they usually reflect the regularity or even monotony of the conscious way of life. On the basis of these conclusions, and for the purpose of ascertaining the meaning of the dream, I have developed a procedure which I call, quote, taking up the context, end quote. This consists in making sure that every shade of meaning which each salient feature of the dream has for the dreamer is determined by the associations of the dreamer himself. I therefore proceed in the same way as I would in deciphering a difficult text. This method does not always produce an immediately understandable result. Often the only thing that emerges at first is a hint that looks significant. To give an example, I was working once with a young man who mentioned in his anam sorry, anamnesis that he was happily engaged and to a girl of good family. In his dreams, she frequently appeared in very unflattering guise. The context showed the dreamer's unconscious connected the figure of his bride with all kinds of scandalous stories from quite another source, which was incomprehensible to him and naturally also to me. But from the constant repetition of such combinations, I had to conclude that despite his conscience, conscious resistance, there existed in him an unconscious tendency to show his bride in this ambiguous light. 
He told me that if such a thing were true, it would be a catastrophe. His acute neurosis had set in a short time after his engagement. Although it was something he could not bear to think about, this suspicion of his bride seemed to me a point of such capital importance that I advised him to instigate some inquiries. These showed the suspicion to be well-founded, and the shock of the unpleasant discovery did not kill the patient, but, on the contrary, cured him of his neurosis and also of his bride. Thus, although the taking up of the context resulted in an unthinkable meaning, and hence in an apparently nonsensical interpretation, it proved correct in the light of facts, which were subsequently disclosed. This case is of exemplary simplicity, and it is superfluous to point out that only rarely do dreams have so simple a solution. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So basically, this guy kept having dreams, um, and it turned out his dreams were right. The context of his dreams were right. See? Uh, so this is something of, uh, how would we say, uh, sort of uh, an insight so to say, at times. Dreams could be very insightful. They could give us uh, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, an inkling of something. Um, it's, it's, you know, a natural process here. It's intuition, right? Uh, it could be a, a, uh, a vehicle for intuitions of sorts, right, that we don't consciously understand or consciously perceive, but uh, our subconscious mind will certainly uh, do things to us on a conscious level. And, and this might be one of them. Uh, maybe throw something in a dream as part of an intuition here uh, to give you a hint of something that uh, you don't consciously observe, but uh, you could understand by the subtext of things that something's going on with it. So that's kind of what uh, Young is pointing out there. Uh, so <clears throat> let's continue on here. The examination of the context is, to be sure, a simple, almost mechanical piece of work, which has only a preparatory significance. But the subsequent production of a readable text, i.e. the actual interpretation of the dream, is, a rule, as, is as a rule a very exacting task. It needs psychological empathy, ability to coordinate, intuition, knowledge of the world and of men, and above all, a special canniness which depends on wide understanding as well as on a certain intelligence du cour. All these presupposed qualifications, including even the last, are valuable for the art of medical diagnosis in general. No sixth sense is needed to understand dreams, but more is required than routine recipes such as are found in vulgar little dream books or which invariably develop under the influence of preconceived notions. Stereotyped interpretation of dream motifs is to be avoided. The only justifiable interpretations are those reached through a painstaking examination of the context. Even if one has great experience in these matters, one is again and again obliged before each dream to admit one's ignorance and renouncing all preconceived ideas to prepare for something entirely unexpected. Even though dreams refer to a definite attitude of consciousness and a definite psychic situation, their roots lie deep in the unfathomably dark recesses of the conscious mind. For want of a more descriptive term, we call this unknown background the unconscious. We do not know its nature in and for itself, but we observe certain effects from whose qualities we venture certain conclusions in regard to the nature of the unconscious psyche. 
Because dreams are the most common and most normal expression of the unconscious psyche, they provide the bulk of the material for its investigation. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So this is an important idea. Okay, dreams are an expression of the unconscious mind. Keep that in mind. All right. The unconscious mind. Uh, this is also an important idea here, too, uh, because the unconscious mind is the thing that is uh, affected by archetypes, mythologies, um, you know, metaphors, all of these subjective ideas. They affect the unconscious mind. So therefore, uh, it it could be conceivable that uh, an idea can be implanted in the subconscious mind, sorry, the unconscious mind, and then maybe reveal itself through a dream. Uh, so that supposition that Gregory was asking about in the, the uh, chat here about have they found a way to uh, hijack your dreams, maybe. I would say that's it's probably a far older thing than... Uh, based upon what uh, Young is saying here, than than what I was initially thinking of, uh, I was thinking in maybe in terms of uh, you know an electronic device or something like that, brain monitoring. I think there was a movie back in the 1980s based upon that. I, I was it called Dreamscape? Maybe um, I'll have to look that up. I vaguely remember watching this uh, many many decades ago, uh, but th that was the the concept of the movie is uh, uh, they were able to uh, hack into people's dreams uh, in, a, in a scientific lab or something. So, I mean, there might be some interesting ideas to that whole theme, too. Uh, because if you are affecting people uh, in a way where they are uh, having dreams of certain things, well, this means, according to what Young's saying here, their unconscious mind has been affected somehow. So uh, it's a very real possibility. Uh, that uh, you could be affected, and maybe largely we are affected by some of these ideas, right? Uh, so who's to say for sure? But let's let's read on here because uh, I found that to be a very interesting concept here and an interesting link. Uh, dreams are a uh, an expression of the unconscious mind. So keep that in mind as we move forward, uh, which is also another important idea to keep in mind, right? Uh, this way, by monitoring our dreams and knowing what it is we're dreaming about, we could maybe understand things that are affecting our unconscious mind, right? And be more consciously aware of that and maybe have more control over such things. Uh, but let's read on here and see what else he's saying. <coughs> Since the meaning of most dreams is not in accord with the tendencies of the conscious mind, but shows peculiar deviations, we must assume that the unconscious the matrix of dreams, has an independent function. I'm going to pause for a second there. Notice he used the word matrix of dreams here. Matrix. This whole idea of matrix. I've noticed this a lot recently. I think I even mentioned the word matrix, something to that effect, on last night's live stream I did too. Uh, this has come up a lot, the idea of the matrix. Um, and... You know, it's an important concept, and it's something I'm going to have to do a bit more digging on uh, and, and maybe come to terms with something like that, because uh, perhaps this term matrix is one of those uh, uncanny twilight language type words uh, that's been used here. So maybe there's more involved when we hear the term matrix than what we usually think of, because we... Uh, have been conditioned to think of things like the movie The Matrix from 1999, right? In terms with that, something technological. 
And that's not necessarily the case as to what it is. So, uh, you know, it, it's <laughs> an interesting dichotomy here with that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, anyway, let's continue on. I don't want to get hung up on that idea, but I, I just noticed that uh, that's been that, that term has been cropping up a lot lately, and maybe there's a reason for that. Um, so let's continue. This is what I call the autonomy of the unconscious. The dream not only fails to obey our will, but very often stands in flagrant opposition to our conscious intentions. The opposition need not always be so marked. Sometimes the dream deviates only a little from the conscious attitude and introduces only slight modifications. Occasionally, it may even coincide with conscious contents and tendencies. When I, I attempted to express this behavior in a formula, the concept of compensation seemed to me the only adequate one, for it alone is capable of summing up all the various ways in which a dream behaves. Compensation must be strictly distinguished from complementation. The concept of a complement is too narrow and too restricting. It does not suffice to explain the function of dreams because it designates a relationship in which two things supplement one another more or less mechanically. Compensation, on the other hand, as the term implies, means balancing and comparing different data or points of view so as to produce an adjustment or a rectification. In this regard, there are three possibilities. If the conscious attitude to life situation is in a large degree one-sided, then the dream takes the opposite side. If the, if the conscious has a position fairly near the middle, the dream is satisfied with variations. If the conscious attitude is correct or adequate, then the dream coincides with and emphasizes this tendency, though without forfeiting its particular autonomy. As one never knows with certainty how to evaluate the conscious situation of a patient, dream interpretation is naturally impossible without questioning the dreamer. But even if we know the conscious situation, we know nothing of the attitude of the unconscious. As the unconscious is the matrix not only of dreams, but also of psychogenic symptoms, the question of the attitude of the unconscious is of great practical importance. The unconscious, not caring whether I and those about me feel my attitude to be right, may, so to speak, be of, quote-unquote, another mind. This, especially in the case of neurosis, is not a matter of indifference. As the unconscious is quite capable of bringing about all kinds of unwelcome disturbances by mistake, often with serious consequences or of provoking neurotic symptoms, these disturbances are due to lack of harmony between conscious and unconscious. Normally, as we say, such harmony should be present. The fact is, however, that very frequently it is simply not there, and this is the reason for a vast number of psychogenic misfortunes, ranging from severe accidents and illness to harmless slips of the tongue. We owe our knowledge of these relationships to the work of Freud, and I'm going to pause there, folks. So, Jung is backing up some of the ideas of Freud here, uh, but uh, I notice there's also a, another aspect of this that he's not touching upon, um, and not that I've seen yet here anyway, uh, but this doesn't pertain directly to psychology, so he probably wouldn't touch upon it here, uh, but this is a concept known as the Aramonic double uh, that was touched upon by Rudolf Steiner. 
so, you know, this being the case, uh, this equates um, almost one to one with uh, Freud's breakdown of the id, the ego, and the superego. Uh, because how Steiner describes this, as we all have within us, uh, this conflict going on between what uh, he would call the Luciferic forces and the Aramonic forces between us. Uh, so, you know, these things would equate to the id and the ego and the superego, uh, because, you know, the, it's the, uh, the superego, uh, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering the Freudian terms correctly, would equate to uh, this Luciferic type uh, idea, and the id would refer to this aramonic idea. Uh, so the ego, this is actually the conscious, uh, our, our conscious personality that uh, takes all this in, or the combination of these two forces, this good and evil uh, dichotomy that goes on within all of us, this battle. Uh, so this, this carries over into more alchemical thought when you, when you look at it. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, my guess as to why he would be backing up Freud here. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, uh, it, it's interesting to look at it from this angle because uh, a lot of these uh, psychologists and psychiatrists in the early 20th century here, uh, they came up with a lot of this terminology and stuff to describe in scientific parlance these things that were understood uh, by many of the uh, uh, occultists, right? And uh, many of the uh, um, ancient uh, mystery schools and uh, the secret society groups and things like this. Uh, the, these different uh, chains of knowledge that have been passed down on a lot of these things. Uh, they're just described differently. That's all. They're, they're given a more modern spin, right? So that's, that's kind of a, a breakdown here that you could see that correlation between the work of Freud and uh, the things that Steiner was saying. It's the same kind of idea. It's just different descriptive terms used uh, to explain this stuff. That's all. So uh, uh, it's giving a more modern scientific shine to it uh, than what was, you know, uh, accepted by, uh, you know, those uh, people at the time. So let's read on here. Although in the great majority of cases, compensation aims at establishing a normal psychological balance and thus appears as a kind of self-regulation of the psychic system, one must not forget that under certain circumstances and in certain cases, for instance in latent psychoses, compensation may lead to a fatal outcome owing to the preponderance of destructive tendencies. The result is suicide or some other abnormal action apparently preordained in the life pattern of certain hereditarily tainted individuals. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So uh, uh, what he's relating the idea to, to uh, a sort of genetics or epigenetic factor here as well. Uh, so, you know, that being said, uh, that, that's an interesting dichotomy he's making here too. Uh, so, you know, you could say here uh, a lot of this is caused by this unbalance between the, these two parts of, of the mind, the conscious and the unconscious, right? So that, that's what he's saying. It's all about uh, another factor here called homeostasis. And this is an important concept. And this, this is one that's heavily uh, leveraged by the cyberneticists that uh, run this place uh, using the, the cybernetics methodologies, right? Homeostasis. This is key. There, there was a gentleman named Walter Cannon who came up with the concept of homeostasis as far as being uh, used in physiological uh, systems back in the 1920s. And a lot of his work 
is very foundational to these different ideas. And it's it could be applied across all different things, right? This homeostasis. And it's the same thing that it seems that Jung is talking about here, this, this balance between the unconscious and the conscious mind. Uh, so without this balance, things go out of whack and bad things happen, right? Uh, it's the same thing with homeostasis. And this is the perfect system for creating a type of feedback loop uh, in order to uh, initiate control. Uh, so that's uh, why it's an important principle to keep in mind. So if you understand the concept of homeostasis and you know a way that you could unbalance this homeostasis in a certain way, uh, you could cause, well, you could create, and this is applying a cybernetics methodology. And I know I talk about this a lot, and I hope people understand uh, the importance of this um, what happens in this case if you have a homeostatic system such as this where you have this this type of balance uh, between these factors what can be done with this is some outside influence can be introduced and uh, this breaks into the system and causes an unbalance in the system and doing this uh, the introducing this new uh, new thing into the system this is called a uh, what you would call a causal circuit it creates a causal circuit uh, so by introducing this new thing to the system, it disrupts the system in a certain way, and it causes this information to loop through the whole system in a form of feedback, and it gives an output. So this new input uh, returns around the system and gives an output. And with that output, you could uh, take that output and... Uh, turn it back into another input in order to steer the system in a certain way. And this works across all systems. And this is what we would call a feedback loop, right? Uh, so it creates this feedback loop. So they, they get the information out, and then they could put new information back in in order to change the system up in the way that they need. Uh, so if they figure out ways to do this with a conscious mind and an unconscious mind, uh, this could cause all kinds of uh, different behavioral issues, couldn't it? Or different uh, kinds of uh, social issues or different kinds of, uh, you know, intellect issues, things like this. Uh, so uh, when you think about this stuff seriously and understand, uh, we've been jacked with in a lot of ways by uh, some of these people in charge that we may not even realize, because it could be something as simple as, you know, introducing new information of some sort into the system. Uh, and information is a very broad term. I mean, this is all very generalized. Uh, but if you're talking like in regards to... Uh, different kinds of systems, you, you could see how this methodology could be applied across the board in any system. It could be applied in physiology, psychology, economics, e everything. You introduce this new input into the system and uh, it causes this uh, chain reaction through the entire loop. So, uh, you know, this is an important idea, uh, but I don't want to get too hung up on that. Uh, let's, let's continue reading on here. And try and stay a little more on topic. I, I tend to side tangent an awful lot, it seems. Uh, okay, let's see. Where'd we leave off? Okay, although in the great majority of cases, compensation aims at establishing a normal psychological balance and thus appears as a kind of self-regulation of the psychic system, one must not forget that under certain circumstances and in certain cases, for instance in latent psychoses, compensation may lead to a fatal outcome owing to the preponderance of destructive tendencies. The result is suicide and some other abnormal action apparently preordained in the life pattern of certain hereditary trait 
hereditarily tainted individuals. And sorry, we read that part already, but okay, I just repeated it. Now we're back where we left off. Let's Let's pick it up. In the treatment of neurosis, the task before us is to reestablish an approximate harmony between conscious and unconscious. This, as we know, can be achieved in a variety of ways, from, quote, living a natural life, end quote, persuasive reasoning, strengthening the will, to analysis of the unconscious. Because the simpler methods so often fail and the doctor does not know how to go on treating the patient, the compensatory function of dreams offers welcome assistance. I do not mean that the dreams of modern people indicate the appropriate method of healing, as was reported of the incubation dreams dreamt in the temples of Asclepius. They do, however, illuminate the patient's situation in a way that can be exceedingly beneficial to health. They bring him memories, insights, experiences, awaken dormant qualities in the personality, and reveal the unconscious element in his relationships. So it seldom happens that anyone who has taken the trouble to work over his dreams with qualified assistance for a longer period of time remains without enrichment and a broadening of his mental horizon. Just because of their compensatory behavior, a methodological methodological analysis of dreams discloses new points of view and new ways of getting over the dreaded impasse. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Notice he mentioned Asclepius here. Once again, hearkening back to the ideas of mythology and, uh, you know, the ideas of the old alchemical sciences, he was well versed in this, right? Uh, so Carl Jung was uh, very well versed in alchemical thought as well as, uh, you know, the modern, more scientific vantage point of, of looking at psychiatry and psychology. Uh, so this, once again, is another important thing to keep in mind. Uh, this guy knew what he was talking about. He, he knew human behavior very well. And uh, he had uh, the insights of uh, some of the older ways into these things. So that being the case, he kind of uh, brought them forward into the new modern scientific parlance of things and uh, gave attention to things that other psychologists and psychiatrists of the time weren't paying attention to. So let's read on here. <coughs> The term compensation naturally gives us only a very general idea of the function of dreams. But if, as happens in long and difficult treatments, the analyst observes a series of dreams often running into hundreds, there gradually forces itself upon him a phenomenon which, in an isolated dream, would remain hidden behind the compensation of the moment. This phenomenon is a kind of developmental process in the personality itself. At first, it seems that each compensation is a momentary adjustment of one-sidedness or an equalization of disturbed balance. But with deeper insight and experience, these apparently separate acts of compensation arrange themselves into a kind of plan. They seem to hang together, and in the deepest sense, to be subordinated to a common goal, so that a long dream series no longer appears as a senseless string of development. I have called this unconscious process spontaneously expressing itself in the symbolism of a long dream series, the individuation process. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. This is an important idea in occult philosophy, too, the individuation process. This is talked about by the Rosicrucians and various other groups, uh, some of which would be uh, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, right? 
um, they, they talk about this idea, the individuation process, and this has to do with uh, um, how we manifest from uh, the Spirit of God, how God uh, brought us into being, and how we become manifest as individuals, as fractal uh, units of God himself, so to say, in, in certain respects. Uh, that's how they, they refer to this. Uh, so we're we're all a, a small part of, uh, of of God's consciousness in a way. This is how they they view it uh, within the occult philosophies anyway, right? Uh, so this is kind of taking the same idea and applying it to psychological modern day scientific terms. Uh, so anyway, this this is an important idea that was brought down through uh, alchemy from Jung here directly into psychology. Uh, so a lot of these ideas are far older than uh, what, uh, you know, our modern science would claim as far as, uh, you know, the psychological aspects of things. Psychology is a much older science than what we're taught. Uh, it wasn't called that way back when, though. See, that's the thing. So, <laughs> you know, it's important to keep these ideas in mind as we move forward here. But let's read on. Here, more than anywhere else in a discussion of dream psychology, illustrative examples would be desirable. Unfortunately, this is quite impossible for technical reasons. I must therefore refer the reader to my book, Psychology and Alchemy. And I'm going to pause there for a moment. Young wrote a book called Psychology and Alchemy. Uh, that should give you an indication of what he knew, right? Uh, like I said, he was an alchemist as well as a psychologist. He was well-versed in these old sciences. So he says here, uh, I must therefore refer the reader to my book, Psychology and Alchemy, which contains an investigation into the structure of a dream series with special reference to the individuation process. And once again, I'm going to pause there, folks, and point out the idea, the individuation process directly derived from alchemical thought. He's, you know, made the, the connection right here. Uh, there's the direct line from psychology to alchemy right there in a book Young wrote. And this idea uh, is a direct line uh, from, you know, occult philosophy directly into modern psychology. Let's read on. The question whether a long series of dreams recorded outside the analytical procedure would likewise reveal a development aiming at individuation is one that cannot be answered at present for lack of the necessary material. The analytical procedure, especially when it includes a systematic dream analysis, is a process of quickened maturation, as Stanley Hall once aptly remarked. It is therefore possible that the motifs accompanying the individuation process appear chiefly and predominantly in a dream series recorded under analysis, whereas in extra-analytical dream series, they occur only at much greater intervals of time. I have mentioned before that dream interpretation requires, among other things, specialized knowledge. While I am quite ready to believe that an intelligent layman with some psychological knowledge and experience of life could, with practice, diagnose dream compensation correctly, I consider it impossible for anyone without knowledge of mythology and folklore and without some understanding of the psychology of primitives and of comparative religion to grasp the essence of the individuation process which, according to all we know, lies at the base of psychological compensation. And I'm going to pause there, folks, and I'm going to repeat part of that sentence here because this 
is extremely important. He says, quote, I consider it impossible for anyone without knowledge of mythology and folklore and without some understanding of the psychology of primitives and of comparative religion to grasp the essence of the individuation process, end quote. So, is he telling you here essentially what uh, the, uh, the uses and uh, the, uh, the various uh, facets of mythology are used for? It's for an individuation process. It's a type of in initiation. It's an initiatory rite. Uh, it has everything to do with occult science, folks. Uh, so all of these things he's naming here and calling psychological uh, uh, methodologies, dream analysis and interpretation, this kind of thing, this is all based upon the older occult sciences. It's based upon alchemical thought. Okay, And this is a very important thing to keep in mind. Uh, so a lot of these things are much older and uh, much different than what we've been led to believe in our modern world, right? So let's read on here. Not all dreams are of equal importance. Even primitives distinguish between little and big dreams, or as we might say, insignificant and significant dreams. Looked at more closely, little dreams are the nightly fragments of fantasy coming from the subjective and personal sphere, and their meaning is limited to the affairs of every day. That is why such dreams are easily forgotten, just because their validity is restricted to the day-to-day -day fluctuations of the psychic balance. Significant dreams, on the other hand, are often remembered for a lifetime, and not infrequently prove to be the richest jewel in the treasure house of psychic experience. How many people have I encountered who, at the first meeting, could not refrain from saying, I once had a dream? Sometimes it was the first dream they could ever remember, and one that occurred between the ages of three and five. I have examined many such dreams, and often found in them a peculiarity which distinguishes them from other dreams. They contain symbolical images, which we also come across in the mental history of mankind. It is worth noting that the dreamer does not need to have any inkling of the existence of such parallels. This peculiarity is characteristic of dreams of the individuation process, where we find the mythological motifs or mythologems I have designated as archetypes. Going to pause there, folks. There it is. There it is. This is the kind of thing I talk about all the time. It's important to understand archetypes and mythology because I assure you, people in positions of power in this world understand these things and have learned how to utilize them and weaponize them against the public and affect the unconscious mind with them. And by affecting the unconscious mind, they therefore affect the conscious behavior of people in this way. So uh, let's keep that in mind as we move on here. So where'd we leave off? Okay. These are to be understood as specific forms and groups of images which occur not only at all times and in all places, but also in individual dreams, fantasies, visions, and delusional ideas. Their frequent appearance in individual case material, as well as their universal distribution, prove that the human psyche is unique 
and subjective or personal only in part, and for the rest is collective and objective. Thus, we speak on the one hand of a personal and on the other of a collective unconscious, which lies at a deeper level and is further removed from consciousness than the personal unconscious. And I'm going to pause there, folks. These are big ideas, okay? He's stating here that there's a personal unconscious and a collective unconscious. And the idea of the collective unconscious has been referred to by many other different names through the ages, hasn't it? This would be called ancestral memory. Uh, this would be called, um, you know, the Akashic record. This would be called, uh, in the more modern era, genetic memory or epigenetic memory. See? The collective unconscious. All right? Uh, and I, I think maybe he'll do a little bit of a distinction here in this uh, writing. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll, we'll see as we get on here. But uh, he's making the differentiation right now between the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious and how they're linked together. But let's read on and see what he has to say here. So he says, I'm going to read that again. Thus we speak on the one hand of a personal and on the other of a collective unconscious, which lies at a deeper level and is further removed from consciousness than the personal unconscious. The big or meaningful dreams come from this deeper level. So I'm going to pause there. So the collective unconscious, the big or more meaningful dreams come from the collective unconscious is what he's saying. So keep that in mind as we move forward. They reveal their significance, quite apart from the subjective impression they make, by their plastic form, which often has a poetic force and beauty. Such dreams occur mostly during the critical phases of life, in early youth, puberty, at the onset of middle age, which would be 36 to 40, and within sight of death. Their interpretation often involves considerable difficulties because the material which the dreamer is able to contribute is too meager. For these archetypal products are no longer concerned with personal experiences, but with general ideas whose chief significance lies in their intrinsic meaning and not in any personal experience and its associations. For example... A young man dreamed of a great snake that guarded a golden bowl in an underground vault. To be sure, he had once seen a huge snake in a zoo, but otherwise he could suggest nothing that might have prompted such a dream, except perhaps the reminiscence of fairy tales. Judging by this unsatisfactory context, the dream, which actually produced a very powerful effect, would have hardly any meaning but that would not explain its, decide, its decided emotionality. In such a case, we have to go back to mythology, where the combination of snake or dragon with treasure and cave represents an ordeal in the life of the hero. Then it becomes clear that we are dealing with a collective emotion, a typical situation full of effect, which is not primarily a personal experience, but becomes one only secondarily. Primarily, it is a universally human problem, which, because it has been overlooked subjectively, forces itself objectively upon the dreamer's consciousness. A man in middle life still feels young, and age and death lie far ahead of him. At about 36, he passes the zenith of life without being conscious of the meaning of this fact. 
If he is a man whose whole makeup and nature do not tolerate excessive unconsciousness, then the import of this moment will be forced upon him, perhaps in the form of an archetypal dream. It would be in vain for him to try to understand the dream with the help of a carefully worked-out context, for it expresses itself in strange mythological forms that are not familiar to him. The dream uses collective figures because it has to express an eternal human problem that repeats itself endlessly, and not just a disturbance of personal balance. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. Are you picking up the importance of the idea of archetype and mythology here? And how even though you may have no conscious uh, understanding of it, it will affect your mind anyway? See? And it will affect your dream state, so to be? These these ideas of the collective unconscious, uh, this kind of thing, it, it it's an important idea, Right? It, it truly is. It, it explains uh, things that are inexplicable otherwise, uh, this, this whole facet of things. But let's read on here. All these moments in the individual's life, when the universal laws of human fate break uh, in upon the purposes, expectations, and opinions of the personal consciousness, are stations along the road of the individuation process. This process is, in effect, the spontaneous realization of the whole man. The ego-conscious personality is only part of the whole man, and its life does not yet represent his total life. The more he is merely I, the more he splits himself off from the collective man, of whom he is also a part, and may even find himself in opposition to him, but since everything living strives for wholeness, the inevitable, inevitable one-sidedness of our conscious life is continually being corrected and compensated by the universal human being in us, whose goal is the ultimate integration of conscious and unconscious, or better, the assimilation of the ego to a wider personality. So, I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. This is foundationally very important, this whole thing he's talking about. Uh, you can see how he's kind of uh, trailing off here from what we would call quote-unquote science in the modern era and talking about more philosophical ideas, right? Or more occultic type ideas here. Uh, how he's talking about the assimilation of the ego Right, and this is an important concept in the uh, the occult sciences as well, the ego, and you know we, we see the correlations all going on here, and this is actually you know what uh, Freud used as one of the terms when he talks about the separate uh, parts of the mind and how they they operate, and uh, as we discussed earlier, these line up one to one with uh, what Steiner called the uh, Luciferic and the Aramonic forces uh, within the human being. Right, and uh, striking the balance between those and and that kind of thing, uh, so it, it's an interesting juxtaposition here with this this kind of thing going on. Uh, but uh, at any rate, let's read on here and see what else Young has to say here because uh, this is a fascinating read and a lot of dots being connected. So let's read on and see what else we could uh, kind of suss out of this document. Such reflections are unavoidable if one wants to understand the meaning of big dreams. 
They employ numerous mythological motifs that characterize the life of the hero, the greater of the that greater man who is semi-divine by nature. Gonna pause there. There it is, semi-divine. <laughs> so you see, once again here, uh, how all these ideas relate together uh, with some of the more alchemical thoughts or the more, uh, um, you know, occultic type thought here. So uh, notice the language he uses here. Now, this is one of the preeminent psychologists, psychiatrists of the early 20th century, one of the foundational ones to the actual science of psychology, right? And he's utilizing these occult motifs all throughout his work here. Uh, these are older ideas. These are much older ideas that they kind of brought forward and encapsulated into this new science that they called psychology. Uh, so keep that in mind as we go. But uh, let's read on. <clears throat> Here we find the dangerous adventures and ordeals such as occur in initiations. Going to pause there. There it is again. Initiations. What was I saying earlier? Let's read on. We meet dragons, helpful animals, and demons. Also the wise old man, the animal man, the wishing tree, the hidden treasure, the well, the cave, the walled garden, the transformative processes and substances of alchemy, and so forth. All things which in no way touch the banalities of every day. The reason for this is that they have to do with the realization of a part of the personality which has not yet come into existence but is still in the process of becoming. And I'm going to pause there, folks. This language right here sounds exactly, exactly verbatim like many other things I've read from various secret society groups and from various, uh, you know, occult scholars and things like this. Exactly what he's saying here. This is all, this all stems back to the ancient mystery schools. All of it. This is much, much older than the 20th century. And this is much, much older than what our modern science of quote-unquote psychology uh, would have us believe, right? Uh, these ideas he's talking about here. This is much older these are, you know, from the old natural sciences and from the old alchemical thought, the philosophies of old. Uh, so they, they've kind of switched these things around and put a more modern spin on them and called them science now. Uh, so let, let's read on here, though. How such mythologems get condensed in dreams and how they modify one another is shown by the picture of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapter 4. Although purporting to be no more than a representation of that dream, it has, so to speak, been dreamed over again by the artist, as is immediately apparent if one examines the details more closely. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. He has here, it says in the front piece, of, of this uh, document, uh, I guess there's a, a photo or a, not a photo, a, a painting that was done by an artist of, of this uh, dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, that's what he's referring to here. But uh, let's, let's read on here. The tree is growing in quite an unbiblical manner out of the king's navel. It is therefore the genealogical tree of Christ's ancestors that grows from the navel of Adam, the tribal father. For this reason, it bears in its branches the pelican, 
who nourishes its young with its blood, a well-known allegory of Christ. Apart from that, the pelican, together with the four birds that take the place of the four symbols of the evangelists, form a quincunx, and this quincunx reappears lower down in the stag, another symbol of Christ. With the four animals looking upwards, these two quaternities have the closest connections with alchemical ideas. Above the the volatilia, below the terrena. The former traditionally represented as birds, the latter as quadrupeds. Thus, not only has the Christian conception of the genealogical tree and of the evangelical quaternity, quaternity, sorry, the evangelical quaternity insinuated itself into the picture, but also the alchemical idea of the double quaternity, superius est sicut quad inferius. This Contamination shows in the most vivid way how individual dreams make use of archetypes. The archetypes are condensed, interwoven, and blended not only with one another, as here, but also with unique individual elements. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So he's laying down some serious alchemical ideas here, right? And he's showing how they're interwoven with the Christian religious doctrine and stuff as well. Uh, so uh, what this represents in this this piece of art that he's describing here, uh, this represents that all these alchemical concepts are present within Christian doctrine, right? Uh, so this is an important idea. Uh, it's it's just a different reference point uh, to view it from. Uh, so all of this stuff, all of this alchemical thought is encoded very much so in the Christian faith and in the Bible itself. It's all there. It truly is. Uh, if you understand how to read through the symbology and the layers of meaning there, it's all in there for sure. Uh, so he says this points to a type of truth in a sense, and it, it ties back to the alchemical ideas. Uh, so that's what he's equating this to here, these psychological ideas. He's equating back to these old alchemical ideas. Uh, so this is important to keep in mind. But anyway, let's get back on track here, because we're almost finished. Okay, but if dreams produce such essential compensations, why are they not understandable? I have often been asked this question. The answer must be that the dream is a natural occurrence, and that nature shows no inclination to offer her fruits gratis, or according to human expectations. It is often objected that the compensation must be ineffective unless the dream is understood. This is not so certain, however, for many things can be effective without being understood. But there is no doubt that we can enhance its effect considerably by understanding the dream, and this is often necessary because the voice of the unconscious so easily goes unheard. What nature leaves imperfect is perfected by the art, says an alchemical dictum. Coming now to the form of dreams, we find everything from lightning impressions to endlessly spun-out dream narrative. Nevertheless, there are a great many average dreams in which a definite structure can be perceived, not unlike that of a drama. For instance, the dream begins with a statement of place, such as, I was in a street, 
it was an avenue, number one, or I was in a large building like a hotel, number two. Next comes a statement about the protagonist. For instance, I was walking with my friend X in a city park. At a crossing, we suddenly ran into Mrs. Y, number three, or I was sitting with father and mother in a train compartment, number four, or I was in uniform with many of my comrades, number five. Statements of time are rarer. I call this phase of the dream the exposition. It indicates the scene of action, the people involved, and often the initial situation of the dreamer. In the second phase comes the development of the plot. For instance, I was in a street. It was an avenue. In the distance, a car appeared, which approached rapidly. It was being driven very unsteadily, and I thought the driver must be drunk, number one. Or Mrs. Y seemed to be very excited and wanted to whisper something to me hurriedly, which my friend X was obviously not intended to hear. Number three, the situation is somehow becoming complicated, and a definite tension develops because one does not know what will happen. The third phase brings the culmination, or peripatia. Here, something decisive happens, or something changes completely. Suddenly, I was in the car, and it seemed, and seemed to be myself, this drunk driver. Only, I was not drunk, but strangely insecure, and is as if without a steering wheel. I could no longer control the fast-moving car and crashed into a wall, number one. Or suddenly, Mrs. Y turned deathly pale and fell to the ground, number three. The fourth and last phase is the lysis, the solution or result produced by the dream work. Going to pause there, folks. The dream work. Dream work. Dream works. Hmm. Interesting, huh? The dream work. Let's, let's keep that in mind here. This, like I said, the, the idea of interpretation of dreams as well as psychology itself and everything that goes with this. Uh, this is a much older idea than what we're, you know, uh, pretty much taught to believe here, right? So these things have been going on from time immemorial. Uh, dream work. Uh, so this would be an equivalent of uh, the great work, so to say, uh, but in a a different facet of consciousness here. But let's read on. There are certain dreams in which the fourth phase is lacking, and this can present a special problem not to be discussed here. Examples. I saw that the front part of the car was smashed. It was a strange car that I did not know. I myself was unhurt. I thought with some easiness of my responsibility. One, we thought Mrs. Y was dead, but it was evidently only a faint. My friend X cried out, I must fetch a doctor. Number three, the last phase shows the final situation which is at the same time the solution sought by the dreamer. In dream, I am a new reflectiveness. Sorry, in dream, I, a, a new reflectiveness, has supervened after a kind of rudderless confusion, or rather, should supervene, since the dream is compensatory. The upshot of dream three is the thought that the help of a component third person is indicated. The first dreamer was a man who had rather lost his head in difficult family circumstances and did not want to let matters go to the extremes. The other dreamer wondered whether he ought to obtain help of a psychiatrist for his neurosis. 
Naturally, these statements are not an interpretation of the dream. They merely outline the initial situation. This division into four phases can be applied without much difficulty to the majority of dreams met with in practice, an indication that dreams generally have a dramatic structure. The essential content of the dream action, as I have shown above, is a sort of finely attuned compensation of the one-sidedness, errors, deviations, or other shortcomings of the conscious attitude. An historical patient, or sorry, an hysterical patient of mine, an aristocratic lady who seemed to herself no end distinguished, met in her dreams a whole series of dirty fishwives and drunken prostitutes. In extreme cases, the compensation becomes so menacing that the fear of it results in sleeplessness. Thus, the dream may either repudiate the dreamer in a most painful way or bolster him up morally. The first is likely to happen to people who, like the last-mentioned patient, have too good an opinion of themselves, the second to those whose self-valuation is too low. Occasionally, however, the arrogant person is not simply humiliated in the dream, but is raised to an altogether improbable and absurd eminence, while all the all-too-humble individual is just as improbably degraded in order to rub it in, as the English say. Many people who know something, but not enough, about dreams and their meaning, and who are impressed by their subtle and apparently intentional compensation, are liable to succumb to the prejudice that the dream actually has a moral purpose, that it warns, rebukes, comforts, foretells the future, etc. If one believes that the unconscious always knows best, one can easily be betrayed into leaving the dreams to take the necessary decisions, and is then disappointed when the dreams become more and more trivial and meaningless. Experience has shown me that a slight knowledge of dream psychology is apt to lead to an overrating of the unconscious which impairs the power of conscious decision. The unconscious functions satisfactorily only when the conscious mind fulfills its tasks to the very limit. A dream may perhaps supply what is then lacking, or it may help us forward where our best efforts have failed. If the unconscious really were superior to consciousness, it would be difficult to see wherein the advantage of consciousness lay, or why it should ever have come into being as a necessary element in the scheme of evolution. If it were nothing but a lucis naturae, the fact of our conscious awareness of the world and of our own existence would be without meaning." The idea that consciousness is a freak of nature is somehow difficult to digest, and for psychological reasons, we should avoid emphasizing it, even if it were correct, which, by the way, we shall luckily never be in a position to prove any more than we can prove the contrary. It is a question that belongs to the realm of metaphysics, where no criterion of truth exists. However, this is in no way to underestimate the fact that metaphysical views are of the utmost importance for the well-being of the human psyche. And I'm going to pause there. That is a, a key point here. Uh, metaphysical views are of utmost importance for the well-being of the human psyche. And I would disagree with his uh, statement here that there's no criterion of truth that exists for metaphysics. Uh, I would say there, there's definitely a criterion of truth that exists within metaphysics, but it's subjective, and that's what makes it hard to uh, actually nail down uh, what's true and what's not with it. So uh, that being the case, um, you know, uh, just a little disagreement here in, uh, um, how should we say, the um, 
the nuance of, of what he's saying, I guess. Uh, but let's read on. We're almost done. We're going to wrap it up here. In the study of dream psychology, we encounter far-reaching philosophical and even religious problems to the understanding of which the phenomenon of dreams has already made decisive contributions, but we cannot boast that we are, at present, in possession of a generally satisfying theory or explanation of this complicated phenomenon. We still know far too little about the nature of the unconscious psyche for that. In this field... There is still an infinite amount of patient and unprejudiced work to be done, which no one will begrudge. For the purpose of research is not to imagine that one possesses the theory which alone is right, but doubting all theories to approach gradually nearer to the truth. And that's the end of the document, folks. So uh, what he's saying here is uh, absolutely the opposite of what our modern science has done, right? He's saying the purpose of research is not to imagine that one possesses the theory which alone is right, but doubting all theories to approach gradually nearer the truth. That's what scientific method is supposed to be, folks. But that's not what's happened with our modern science, has it? Now they try to make the quote-unquote science fit the narrative uh, that they're looking for, that to fit the theory they're pushing or promoting, rather than uh, just trying to delve out what's true within certain theories and not, to try to get gradually closer to what's true and what's not. Now it's all about supporting the theory or holding up the theory as truth, uh, whether it's provably true or not. And that's the problem we have with our modern science. Uh, but you see how Carl Jung here put a lot of emphasis on a lot of these subjective ideas. Things like mythology, archetypes, all of these things, right? Uh, so this is important to keep in mind. He, he's holding up the old alchemical ideas. He's brought them forward into the modern psychological, uh, um, scientific mainstream in certain ways. And uh, people who would delve into these sciences or study these sciences of psychology, sociology, all of this stuff would probably tell you, you know, mythology and stuff like that. That's all nonsense. Uh, you know, all these old alchemical ideas. That's all nonsense and, and hoopla and stuff like that. But uh, what they don't understand is that's actually what they're studying, right? Uh, these are the things that they, they're studying under new names, that were given them by uh, these alchemists turned scientists, so to say. Uh, so, you know, you, you could see the dichotomy of thought going on with that. But uh, this was a very interesting read, and uh, I am still fascinated by uh, the idea of dream interpretation and how dreams are an expression of the unconscious mind and how the unconscious mind is constantly at battle with the conscious mind, so to say. Uh, we have this uh, relationship between the two, and we have to maintain this, this type of homeostatic balance between them in order to maintain our health, psychological and physical and otherwise, right? Uh, so it's an important thing to keep in mind, and it, it lies at the core of what it is to be human and of what this whole great experience is that we live in. Uh, this The subjective as much as the objective, right? It's experiential. Uh, that, that's why we're here. We're, we're being human. Uh, it's, it's part of the, what he calls the individuation process here, right? It's all about becoming. Becoming. Uh, so we, we see a lot of these old ideas, uh, you know, uh, hearkened back to here by, by Jung, 
and uh, by many within the realm of psychology itself. So it's a fascinating thing to see uh, when you could actually look at this stuff and take a step back and understand where it comes from. It comes back from the same sources as many of these other things do, right? You look back, it goes back to the ancient mystery schools. Psychology as a science goes back to the ancient mystery schools. It's provably so right here by the works of Jung. He makes these correlations one-to-one with alchemical processes. And, uh, you know, he does it in no uncertain terms here. So it's an important idea and concept to look at. And plus he touches upon the metaphysical within this as well. And uh, many people in our, you know, modern scientific community would uh, kind of uh, try to discredit that idea of of metaphysics being an actual thing. They, They would call it junk science, right? Or, uh, you know, they would call it nonsense or superstition or that kind of thing. So, that being the case, we could see how many of the foundational things that they believe in the modern science are based upon these very metaphysical ideas. And you could see the hypocrisy involved there. And when you point this out to these people, well, <laughs> they, they shut down. Their eyes glaze over. And it's the same old cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Uh, they shut down. That you know, so when they're trusting the science, are they really trusting the science, or are they trusting in metaphysics or junk science, as they would call it? Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of these things, like I said, they're subjective, they're experiential, and that that is just as important as the objective. Uh, not to uh, you know uh, make it seem less important than it is. All these things are important. All these different factors, but the the bottom line here and the point here is uh, simply this. Right, we have we've brought forward some of these older ideas into our modern age, and many of them have been twisted and perverted in some ways, and have been weaponized and used against us, because the the masses, the the bulk of humanity, we're not taught many of these things anymore. We're not taught about mythology, we're not taught about archetypes. We're not taught about these things anymore. We're not given this classic education where we would understand these motifs on a conscious level when we see them or if they come across in in our unconscious or our our dream state, right? So if we have these weird dreams where, uh, you know, what Jung here mentioned, uh, the the golden snake around a golden bowl, uh, this kind of thing, we would recognize that more for what it is if we understand the mythology. Uh, And... And that's the bottom line here. So if there's people in positions of power that understand these things better than we do, well, can't they weaponize them in certain ways against us by uh, using them maybe subliminally in the entertainment or, uh, you know, in some ways like that? It leaves an impression on your unconscious mind, and this will manifest in some way in your conscious life. So that's the important idea here with a lot of this. And uh, I, uh, like I said, I I found the... uh, concept of studying dreams a very important facet here because it it's kind of a gateway into the mind of sorts isn't it especially the unconscious mind it's a bridge between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind the dream state uh, so there might be some important things caught up in in that whole concept uh, so anyway it's just something i wanted to touch upon because uh, i have had some some dreams that are recurrent dreams and various different kinds of dreams that have stuck with me and uh, very interested in trying to figure out if is there some meaning to them and so I started reading into the works of Jung and various others about dreams 
And it's it's interesting all the different correlations you find with things. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where uh, we may never really understand the meaning of some of our dreams, like the, the deep meaning, but we do need to understand where they come from. Now, some of the bigger dreams, the more important ones or the, uh, the grander ones, the ones we remember the most, may come from somewhere in what Jung called the collective unconscious, which is, you know, the archetypal realm, so to say. Uh, so there might be something more important there. Or something universal to all human beings, right? Uh, that's that's a better way of looking at it. It's something that's universal, that's uh, inherent in us all. It's it's experiential on a level within us all to some degree or another. So these are important ideas to keep in mind. But I, I thought it was a fascinating study, and I figured uh, I would bring that forward tonight. Uh, so I hope everybody enjoyed that, and you know maybe learned something. Um, maybe, you know, uh, pondered upon some interesting things within themselves. Uh, that's what I aim to do. I just want people to think for themselves. Think about things for yourselves, folks. That's the important thing. Use your own mind. The good Lord gave you a mind, right? Let's use it. Instead of depending upon other people uh, to tell us about things or try to steer or influence our behaviors and our our own attitudes on stuff, it, it's important that we think for ourselves and maybe reflect on these things. That's that's the important part here. Thinking and reflecting on some of these ideas. Right? It's not to say, you know, that this is the only feasible uh, interpretation of things or something like that. But it's just food for thought. And I think that's so much of what's lacking in our society today. Thought. Right? People don't think. They They would rather not think. They would rather have information just fed to them through a screen or something like that. That's the entertainment culture we have. They would rather sit there and watch something and not have to really think deeply about anything, be told what to do. Uh, That's not a good mindset. It's all about thinking for ourselves, developing our own uh, types of uh, motivations and and different uh, ways of of researching things and and really understanding, our own methods of understanding. So... uh, that's the whole idea here. I, I hope uh, this encourages people to do some thinking and reflecting upon their own thoughts and experiences. And, uh, you know, maybe find out some more information about uh, different aspects of things than what they would normally look at. Because you never know what you're going to find. I mean, uh, looking into something as simple as dreams, well, we find all these connections back to the alchemical processes and stuff there too, don't we? So you never know what you're going to find in some of these different things. And I'll tell you, another good place to, to look that really relates to this is within the arts. Arts, right? The arts. Paintings and uh, different books on art, especially surrealist art. Uh, if you look at books and writings and, and surrealist art, you'll find all kinds of connections to al- the al- alchemical stream of thought uh, through all of that. Uh, so, you know, these these are things that I, I just find interesting and fascinating. So I wanted to delve a little deeper on dreams, and I'm glad we looked at this because, uh, you know, I, I found this reading from Young very interesting, and I thought I'd share it with you tonight. Uh, so I hope, like I said, that uh, this inspires some thought in people, and I hope you all learned something and uh, enjoyed the talk tonight. Thanks for tuning in. I very much appreciate it, and we'll catch you next time. Have a good night. Come with me
see 